Please be seated. Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. We are here on uh, Indiana Repertory Theater, Inc. versus Cincinnati Casualty Company. Uh, counsel for Appellant uh, uh, IRT is Mr. George Plews. Thank you, sir. And we have Mr. Uh, Gottwald. And somewhere lurking, I think, in the back is Mr. Toner and Mr. Kozak. So, and I see Mr. Rachel back there, too. So, uh, yes, yes, and also Jeff Bledsoe, who's the business manager of the IRT. All right, great. Thank you. Uh, and for the appellee, we have Mr. Dolan. Good afternoon, yeah. And then Mr. Skiles. Thank you, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. And uh, parties have requested, or we have given the parties 20 minutes uh, each side. Mr. Plews, I assume that you want a, uh, let's see, we got 17 3, uh, so three minutes for rebuttal. Correct. All right, sir, you may proceed. May it please the court. Uh, first, uh, thank you for your courtesy in extending the time for the argument to take place to that I got sick in October. I appreciate it very much. Appreciate the opposing counsel's agreement to that as well. Well, the case today before you, I think, can be decided on two bases, one procedural and one substantive. Two errors the court below made. One was in applying Rule 56. The, the court weighed the evidence rather than um, construing it in a light most favorable to the non-movement. That's non-movement. That's actually the two errors involved. It wound up so almost IRT had the burden, according to the court, of going forward with something, and even expressed that view and language in the opinion. When in fact, it's since under Indiana summary judgment law, it's the non—it's the movement's burden to, you know, completely negate all elements or an, ele an essential element of the of the. Um, now movement's case. That didn't happen. And we did then produce three affidavits, three world-class affidavits, I would say. World-class being your term, correct? Um, I think and when you look at each of the experts' backgrounds and expertise, you can, that term is justified, as I was just about to say. Um, Professor Dixon is a man of whom, on whom Indiana relies for its information and data informatics to, to make decisions about closing and not closing. Um, Mr. Wood is Eli Lilly and Company's hygiene expert for, for uh, plant safety and for an expert. years, is he retired now? He's not, no, he's actually a professor at Regan Street. At IUPUI. Yes, after retiring from Lilly after 30 years. And Professor Grinsbaum has an amazing resume and probably a lot of good stories, which we didn't get to ask him about. But he's been an advisor on airborne pathogens for NATO and the Pentagon, CDC, EPA. And he's been doing nothing but studying this stuff since, since, since he started his career. All three of them said then that the virus affects, adversely affects the property, specifically the surfaces and perhaps most importantly the air. I mean, that was their. How does it damage the surface? Hmm? How does it damage the surface? Um, because of the, when it, it creates the fomites on the surface that, that can live for a period of time after they're formed. How long? It depends. We don't really know is part of the problem, Your Honor, and we shouldn't be so quick to throw this out when science is still developing. But the estimates range from 7 to 28 days. Does it so, change the composition of the surface? Um, it attaches to the surface. I understand that. My question is, does it change the composition we don't of the really, surface? We, it, uh, anything we don't have any evidence that indicates that it does, anything, correct? No. We have the, uh, the affidavits of those gentlemen who, of each of them, said that it alters the surface. 
In what way? Um, they describe it so as... that it attaches. Does it attach or does it change the composition of the surface? When something attaches, it changes the composition. I mean, to think that's the scientific truth of the matter. But the point is, this is... A if I put a suction cup on this table, it changes, or on this desk, it changes the composition of the desk? It does in a, in a, in a certain way, yes. And, and that's the evidence. I mean, that's, that would be the evidentiary question. I think by far the larger question is the air effect, and how is the air adversely impacted? And I, and I think there, you had all three gentlemen testifying, and they are qualified. They didn't challenge the qualifications. All three gentlemen testifying that it altered the air. And the way it altered the air... Air that contains pathogen is different than air that does not contain pathogen, right? Yeah, yes, that's true. You don't need a scientist to tell you that, right? No, well, but the point is that what was ignored in this, in this, um, in the court's consideration below, was that the the it was a the IRT was locked into a continually renewing cycle, right? It isn't it isn't enough to say, as the court did, that individual particles die after a period of time. We don't know exactly what that period of time would be, but but what was happening there? We can't use our property. Can't open our property because it's damaged and limited by the fact that every time a new patron comes in, the, the air is reinfected, infected again. Only so if the, the patron's infected. Well, the patron's infected, but it infects the air around. Only it. if the patron is infected does it infect the air. Um, yes, that's true. But what she found was, as the pandemic, it was, became even more dangerous. Um, Dr. Dixon gave an estimate of two patrons in any IRT audience would be adversely infected. And, but then it, as the pandemic went on into, into, and spread through the population, it was more, wound up being 20 persons in any studio, in any IRT audience would be adversely How infected. How large is the audience? It's 400 to 600. What effect, all right, does um, the dangerousness factor have in your determination because we could say the same thing that you're saying about dust. Dust on a surface changes its composition. Dust in the air changes uh, the composition of the air by your argument. Yes. So what part of dangerousness factors into this? It does factor into it essentially. It's, the essential, it's an essential, perhaps the essential part. The dangerousness that it creates is, um, is unparalleled in many respects, but certainly makes the property, it decreases the value and of utility in every other way you want to measure the, the, the way the property is, how it can be used, how it can, um, what its value is. Um, all of the, the stigma from that is another recoverable damage under these policies historically. And it, one point I want to make before leaving about uh, is that this is the only case one of the one of the arguments that that the um, insurance company Cincinnati has made here is that well look at the case law everybody's deciding of course it is it's not it can be the virus dies it can be wiped clean that precludes any damage finding and on, on on the part of courts the problem is none of those courts have actually considered the scientific evidence none you can look in all of their cases and you won't find a, a single reference to a scientific to scientific affidavits coming forward with the actual science on it and the first irt case the court that was appealed here the court said uh, that the uh, loss was not due to physical loss or physical damage as defined by the terms of the policy right and the first irt case first your case. first appeal right 
The Court of Appeals specifically said that, right? Yes. Why is that not the law of the case in this appeal? It isn't the law of the case because the court expressly said in that we should be allowed to present evidence to show that we do alter the property. In that, which, in that same order, the court said, you, you're gonna, we're going to grant your 56F motion. You're going to be allowed that to. That was a trial court. That's correct. I'm talking about the Court of Appeals. Oh. The Court of Appeals said specifically that. Why is that not the law of the case for the entire case, even when it goes back to the trial court? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't, it affirmed the judgment. And in fact, the They specifically said, loss of use of the theaters due to the COVID-19 pandemic was not physical loss or physical damage as defined by the terms of the insurance policy with Cincinnati Casual. That's to the pandemic generally, not to the, the actual alter, any alteration or evidence on, because it was only a, it was only a, law determination there, not a factual determination. And in fact, the judge had already proceeded in the trial court and entered a factual judgment, which is the judgment we have in front of you today. Um, the, judge ordered, the judge found the order that's in front of you today was on December of 2021, December of 20. And then the order, I'm sorry, December of 21, the order that's in-, in I'm that's aware of the timing. 22. My question is why the determination by the Court of Appeals is not binding on everything that happens after that point forward as respect to law of the case for well, the case. It may be the law of the case, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean the case doesn't proceed on the issue that's left open. The issue that was left open Well, that's was, the issue that you're wanting us to, to rule the other way, right? You're wanting us to find that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic did cause physical loss or physical damage, right? That's just limit. No, Is that well, right? No, That's no, your position today? Position today? Yes. Is position today is that the, there's an issue of fact that requires the court below to consider. And that's the, the damage. The issue of fact from, is you're arguing that there was physical loss or physical damage as a result of COVID-19, right? But that's just as a, to Is the, that right, sir? That, not quite. That's okay. not to the, pan, not to the, that's as to the pandemic generally that the pandemic generally is opposed to the specific conditions and condition of the IRT facility, which is what the evidence got to, got to after, before that decision came out, but, after, but in, the, in the decision in December of 21. Is the COVID virus still triggering coverage? Today? Today. Um, if, because of the measures that have been taken to, to correct and to, to uh, adjust for the damage that was done, I, I don't think it is. When did it stop? It stopped at some sometime after those procedures were, were put in place and we got enough of a handle on COVID in the, in the general population to have a comfort level that it was safe. Are you disagreeing with IRT1 in any respect? Well, we, we uh, we're trying to follow IRT one as it as it actually is described, which is to, which is to say that we need to show an alteration, a physical alteration, that requires restoration or repair, or uh, restoration or relocation. I think in this case it's restoration. So yes, we're trying to follow that. So all these toxic gas cases out there in other jurisdictions the ammonia, the cat urine, the carbon monoxide. Right. Are those exceptions to the physical alteration uh, language or do they satisfy physical alteration? I think, they, I think they, th those cases satisfy the physical alteration standard, but they, are, they also show that 
the, the other iterations of that. For example, when this came back, when the court issued its order that's now on appeal here, it added the word structure to it. So that'd be a structural alteration. Well, that word's not in the policy, and it wasn't in the prior cases. And in fact, it'd been rejected by many of those cases that you're talking about, the prior odor and gas cases. So um, the, 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 those rulings which rejected the structural are good rulings. I mean, they are cases where the dangerousness of the property resulting from the infiltration. So if you call that, if you call an infiltration a damage, to, which I do, to the, to the property, particularly when, it's, when it also makes alterations consistent with IRT1, I think we have, we have coverage for that. None of those cases are Indiana cases, correct? Um, if they are. No. In fact, in fact the, Judge Hamilton's case uh, dealing with the Conrad Hotel extensively cites IRT1 and the conclusion that there was no physical damage, oh, right? There are so, uh, many, damage, right? so many things we, we disagree with about that. For one thing, air wasn't even a part of that case. There was no expert evidence offered. Air, air was completely... You're, you're, I mean, you're claiming that Cincinnati Insurance insures the air yes. in, in your facility? As, prop, as property, sure. The, the air... You own the air. What? You own the air? Yes, we own that air, and we explain why that's so in the, in the brief. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a hard... It's not a uh, really too controversial a con a construct. It's not a case that says that exactly, but if you read about the... Yeah, do you have any case from anywhere that says you own the air? Um, yeah, the, the um, Cajun Conte case has a, has, has a description of that. Is and that also, on transfer now to the Supreme Court of Louisiana? Mm, I think it is, yes. But there are a number of, and I would encourage the court to read the recent, in the, in the most recent um, supplemental citations, those cases on both sides. If you read both of them, you can see what's happening. Speaking and, of those, why, why were so many of them filed in the last week before this oral argument, although most of them are several months old? Um, I can't speak specifically. I mean, there was a, there was a, we were, we were trying to get, gather the cases together for the court's consideration. Uh, there weren't secrets to anybody in this room that works on these cases and issues. I can't explain why. I don't have a, I don't have a rationale for why those cases. Can, can you explain there. why uh, you, you felt that it was appropriate to file additional authority that was uh, an article written by one of your law partners? Yeah, I think that raises some interesting evidentiary points that are in the record here, and in, but summarizes them well. And I thought that would be why, why is that not in the brief if they're interesting instead of attaching it as an additional authority well, the, written the, by your office? The article was written on, in, and published in December, which is, you know, the briefing was done. So it, it was, it was, we filed it in January, so well, it's next it just, month. He just occurred to him in December after you filed a brief, these ideas? My point is, you have a limitation on what you can file in your brief. Yeah. And you've supplemented that by filing an article written by a lawyer in your office who's working on the case. Right. How is that not? Uh, who's summarizing should, evidence? How should we not consider that a violation of he's the uh, limitation on what you can put in a brief? He's summarizing um, information and items that continue to be gathered. Which is what you do in a brief. Which is, well, yes, exactly. But our brief was already done. We, I understand that. My question is, if you can't put it in the brief, why are you adding it now? Because we thought it would be relevant and helpful to the court. That's the only reason I'd file anything. 
we didn't hide the article to, to make it last minute or something. No, you Most, violated the, the restriction on how many pages and how many words you many, can have in your brief. Many items, no, many items, most of the items in there were items that have been referenced in the United Policyholders Brief and our own brief. So what I'm, ask, what I'm wondering is, aren't you really trying to shoehorn this case in the language of physical loss and physical damage when, in effect, this is an event cancellation problem, which you should have received event cancellation insurance for, and indeed you have a claim now against the agent for that. We do, we do have that claim. I don't think it's an attempt to shoehorn. I think that the number of cases filed, and especially recent decisions, and I again commend those to the court, to look at to see how they differentiate and see who has this, who has the better argument and whether it makes any sense to have let this case go back to the trial court as it as it indicated originally it would for a factual determination, which is what we're asking for. I mean, we're, that's what we're asking for. The ruling, the ruling below is not consistent with Indiana Rule 56, period. You can't make it consistent. And the, the, the fact that the laws, I mean, these, these cases got here, in our case, in, in many cases, because there was, not a there was not a virus exclusion, which had been developed by the industry back in 2002 and which was available to them. And you, you all have cases, Judge, Judge Cohen, you wrote in the, in the FLM case that that was a, that was a um, you know, when in, in, in the Flexstar case, Judge Vedic, and you were on that one, in the Court of Appeals, in, in, in the Supreme Court, when the insurance company has information, if it has exclusions available to it that would clarify the situation, it's use them. If it doesn't use them, then it's then there's then there's potentially coverage under that policy. And I think there's well, these, these kinds so, of so policies. You're, you're arguing that the existence of the, those exclusions prior to this uh, occurrence uh, is evidence that uh, there's coverage for this occurrence. Oh, absolutely, because it's 20, 20 years before and available to the insurance industry to use the, those those exclusions in in the policies. And they should have. I mean, what's the average policyholder of Ernie Intelligence supposed to think when 83% of the policies around have those exclusions in them, have those virus exclusions? Is there a force majeure uh, provision in this policy? I'm sure there is, yes. But I'm not sure how that, but the, the point of it is the ordinary policyholder of average intelligence, when he looks at, or she looks at her policy, and looks at the other available policies and says, and looks and sees that, that the exclusion is not in the one policy. After all, this is the kind of policy, an all-risk policy, which, to, which the, um, the case law in Indiana, it's the George, George Cook case, 712 Northeast 2nd, 1073. Information, Mr. Yeah. Blues, you've been out of time for a while, so oh. I don't know if you want to save. All right, well, let me, can I, may I finish just uh, the sentence, just to amend that, sure. to amend that case to, as a, as a case, which is an example of an all-risk policy, which is defined by its exceptions. That is, when they say they're going to cover all risks, then it's defined by the exceptions. And indeed, this policy had five pages of exceptions, of exclusions, after, after you get to the, past the coverage clause. But none of them was a virus exclusion. Thank you. Thank you. Before Mr. Dolan starts, I just want to state for the record that I raised my voice with Mr. Plews because he had difficulty hearing me at the beginning. It had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, anything other than making sure that he could hear what I was trying to say. Which I appreciate very no, much. I, I just want to, I want to make that clear. It all clear, types sir. the same, though, right, Judge Groen? Yes. Uh, 
All right, Mr. Dolan. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court, uh, Dennis Dolan on behalf of Cincinnati Casualty Company. Um, I want to start out briefly on something that was just raised regarding the um, additional authority. There was some additional authorities served uh, late uh, Friday uh, that we don't think is appropriate um, and should be disregarded, in particular the articles uh, that Your Honor mentioned. Um, it, it strikes us as this is supplemental briefing, um, not submission of uh, additional authority, and isn't properly uh, before the court here. That includes not just the articles that were um, written by uh, uh, counsel for IRT, but also um, an amicus brief that was filed in the Louisiana court. Um, it's clearly just supplemental briefing, and, and it should not be submitted as additional authority here. So that before we get off that topic. You filed additional authorities last week also, correct? I did, Your Honor. And I noticed that a number of those re relate all the way back to July of last year. Some of those. I, 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 don't, I don't think so, Your Honor. Well, I'm we, looking we, at a list right here that says uh, you filed one Rock Dental, 729, Sullivan Management, 811, um, Circle Block Partners, 825, Cherokee Nation, 915, those I don't, are, those I don't are, appreciate uh, waiting until the last minute before an oral argument uh, to receive uh, authority that uh, occurred uh, five, six, seven months ago. Uh, so, and it's, it's a both sides situation. So I want to make it clear that I'm not picking on Mr. Pugh's uh, alone, and I'm not picking on you, but I'm observing that I don't, I don't think that that's uh, uh, a, a service to the court. I appreciate that, Your Honor, but we didn't file most of those authorities last week. Um, some of, we did file some additional authority last week, uh, but those were particular the neurocommunications case that just came out the first week of uh, January and the uh, tapestry case out of the Supreme Court of Maryland that came out um, uh, in the first week of January as well. Uh, the, the, er, the, case that you're, the other case you're discussing, Circle Block, and, uh, and the Rock Dental case, we submitted those uh, a long time ago. Those were not submitted, those were not submitted last well, week. My, my the, only, the, only, the only authority we submitted last week that wasn't a recent authority was the McMiles case out of Pennsylvania. And frankly, the only reason I submitted that case was to counter um, a, a similar vintage case uh, filed by opposing counsel from Pennsylvania court um, and just to balance that case out, because McMiles is diametrically opposed to the Pennsylvania case they submitted. And, and frankly, I, I would not are you at, Yeah, Are you asking us to disagree with IRT1 in any respect? We're not. Uh, not. We're, we're not asking this court to disagree with IRT. Um, you know, we, we believe it's appropriate, and, and, and what's required is for this court to follow IRT. Um, I, I do believe that that is the law of the case. Um, Do you agree that there's a difference in IRT1 in loss of use versus this case, which uh, looks at physical alteration or physical loss and physical damage? IRT1 did, uh, the legal issue before IRT1 was whether or not loss of use could qualify as physical alteration to property or direct physical loss to property, because that's the operative term in the policy, direct physical loss to property. Um, so the, the court was asked to determine specifically whether loss of use qualified as direct physical loss to property. And they answered that question, no. But in answering that question, they established what, what direct physical loss to property means. And that means physical alteration and physical alteration to property. 
So that's what has to take place to trigger the, the coverage of this policy. And so, so this is a different case here than you're, you're conceding, that this is a different case, and we have to look to see whether or not th there was physical alteration uh, in this case based upon the testimony that was presented by the experts saying that COVID physically altered in some way the air and or surface. Yeah, and, and, and I contend that, that that's correct, that's correct. And I contend that's exactly what uh, Judge Welsh did in her second ruling. Right. Um, she looked at the evidence, she gave them the opportunity to produce evidence of, of physical alteration because she determined that's what was required. Um, gave them the opportunity to do that. They came back with the affidavits that Mr. Plews was talking about. And uh, those were submitted again to, to Judge Welch in and, and, and a continued uh, summary judgment proceeding. And she determined uh, correctly, we contend, that there was no question of fact. She didn't violate uh, uh, pleading standards. She didn't violate Rule 56 in any, any manner. Um, she looked at the evidence that was presented to her and determined that there were no factual disputes. And based upon the, the, the legal requirement, the legal interpretation of the policy that requires physical alteration of property, that there was no dispute and there was no physical alteration as a matter of law because the experts that in their reports that they had submitted agreed with uh, Cincinnati's expert, uh, Dr. Thoman, that the virus can be cleaned, removed by cleaning, and if you do nothing to it, it eventually just dies on its own. And so it necessarily cannot uh, cause a physical alteration to property. And, and one of the, one of the, one of the... So, so let me stop you for a minute. So we can affirm her decision even if we say that the expert's testimony was properly uh, looked at or admitted. I, I, yes, I think, I think that's right. Because the experts agree, um, the experts on both sides agree um, you know, what's really undisputed about the nature of the virus. Um, it doesn't do anything to property. Um, the, the only thing they're contending is that it adheres to surfaces or it's suspended in air. It's not doing anything to the property. And what's required is a physical alteration to property. And so the, the experts were in agreement that, that the virus doesn't cause physical alteration to property. And, and one of the, one of the hangups uh, appears to be this concept of structural um, structural change, um, and you know, they, they, they argue that that Judge Welch uh, changed the, the standard when she ruled in the in the, in the second motion, and she changed it from um, just some amorphous physical alteration um, concept to requiring structural alteration. And I don't think Judge Welch changed the standard at all. If you look back at her first uh, her first uh, ruling, uh, she equated physical alteration with structural alteration. She specifically talked about structural alteration or structural change in her opinion. Um, that was the order that was in front of the court in the first IRT appeal. That's the order that this court um, affirmed. And the, the, in, the, in the opinion, in the first opinion, the IRT opinion, the court noted um, that she talked about structural alteration. She, she equated physical alteration with a structural change in, in the property. Uh, so th this, this was not new. She didn't change her standard when, uh, when she ruled uh, the second time around. So What's I, your, I, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, just, I, I'm no. just curious as to what your position is with regard to the air and IRT, and do you believe that IRT owns the air? Um, I don't think IRT owns the air, and, and we've cited Indiana precedent that 
for the proposition that uh, air is not owned by the property owners. Um, and the only, the only rebuttal they've made to those decisions is they're, they're old and they, they don't uh, account for uh, modern changes and, uh, and, and new technology and, and I, I suppose modern living. They're saying that uh, those cases only addressed with airs flowing over the, over the land, um, but I don't see any real uh, distinction between air that's, there, that's generally out in, 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 in the land or in, in, the, uh, in the atmosphere as opposed to within a building. Maybe it's contained for a, a short period of time, but uh, you open that door, that air is going to be flowing back out. You open your window, that air is going to be flowing in and out. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how you can realistically say you own the air. Is there a force um, majeure clause in the policy? I don't know the answer, Your Honor. <coughs> what about the uh, existence of the uh, virus and uh, bacteria exclusions that were available to your company that were not utilized as part of the policy? This, this is an argument that was raised uh, the first go-around. Uh, this is an argument that's been rejected. Uh, they made the same argument before that the existence <coughs> of the virus exclusion somehow establishes that a virus is capable of causing physical alteration. Um, and the fact that you didn't use a virus exclusion uh, means that, you know, that's an acknowledgement that, that, that a virus can cause physical alteration. Um, that, that was rejected, uh, that argument. Um, and and well, frankly, it has to be coverage before you, have, you need an exclusion, right? That, that, that's correct. And that's precisely the basis. Viruses, uh, exclusions are only relevant if you have a covered loss in the first instance. So you're the, saying there's no coverage for this exposure in the first place. Right, that's correct. Because but if there is, you're also pointing to your exclusions, <coughs> correct? If, if we had a virus exclusion and if there was a claim that the virus was causing some type of physical alteration, um, then yes, we would, we would argue the exclusion apply, but that's going to depend on the facts of the case. That's not, not the facts of the case. You didn't have a virus with. exclusion. This policy, policy does policy. not have a virus exclusion, that's correct. But it was available to your company at the time. Virus exclusions were available, were generally available. Was virus protection also available? Could the IRT have, have purchased virus protection? There are, there are coverages that provide uh, uh, protection um, for event cancellations, such as Justice was just uh, referencing, that are related to uh, communicable disease. Um, those, those types of protections are available. Those products are, are available in the market. They, they weren't purchased here. Um, so I think it would be inappropriate to try to transform uh, Cincinnati's, uh, uh, you know, commercial property policy, their general commercial property policy, into a policy to provide coverage for that type of event in which there are products out there that are tailored. The exclusion tailored that you believe does apply relates to their deciding to close the uh, facility. That's correct. That's as, that, as opposed to a governmental order to close the facility, right? Well, that, that's correct. We, we, we uh, have raised um, in the pleadings, we've raised in, in the, in the, uh, in the briefing below uh, the ordinance and law exclusion as well. Uh, but, you know, IRT's contention is that they didn't close because of the, the, uh, the, the closure orders, that they made an independent decision to do that. Um, so so isn't that a question of fact? As, a, as to the application of the ordinance and law, and that's why we aren't pushing that, that argument on appeal. Uh, we referenced it in our brief. We just reserved it, essentially. Um, and and, and if, if the case was reversed and remanded, that's something we would certainly be arguing if the case went to trial, whether or not they were actually closed because of the ordinance and law, which, frankly, I believe is correct. Um, but their contention is that they closed based on their own decision, and we think that implicates the uh, um, 
the acts or decisions exclusion that, that Your Honor was just. So what bothers me is this noxious uh, odors, <clears throat> gases. How can we di differentiate, if we were inclined to do so, COVID from carbon monoxide? Cat urine. Cat urine, carbon monoxide, well, the uh, case, methamphetamine. Um, is there really any difference? Is, is, are those exceptions to the physical alteration um, requirement or not? I think the jurisdictions that have adopted that um, have not adopted the physical alteration standard. Um, they're adopting something else. They're saying that there is a condition um, that renders the, the premises uninhabitable and unusable. And so we're going to say that's a, physical, um, that's, a, that's a physical loss in the absence of physical alteration. But that's not what Indiana's done. Indiana has adopted the physical alteration standard. So but are they finding have those, those situations to be a property loss? Excuse me? Are they finding those situations to be a property loss? In those jurisdictions that have adopted, like the cat urine case, that's the Mellon decision out of, out of Vermont, um, they, they have uh, adopted that or determined that was a property loss. Uh, but it should be noted that e even, even, if, even if the, uh, you know, somehow the Indiana Court of Appeals uh, decision, first decision in IRT1 is construed to adopt some type of contamination standard, which we don't think it did. It's, it specifically adopted this physical alteration uh, to property standard um, that uh, those cases are fundamentally different from, from the virus and these virus cases. In the Mellon case, for instance, there was, it was, you couldn't remove the, the cat urine odor. And it was, it was, a, it was a, uh, a demonstrable change that you could, that you could detect physically. Um, it, was, it was a pervasive smell that could not be removed. They, they made efforts to remove it. Because from it chemically infiltrated the carpeting or, the, or the premises or whatever, the same way with the methamphetamine, right? Correct. Well, how about the carbon monoxide case? I noticed that you did not uh, respond to that argument. What was that case, the Matzner case? Would carbon monoxide con contamination be excluded from this policy in Indiana? I think it would be uh, because the carbon monoxide is not causing direct physical alteration to, to the property. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a presence issue, and, the, and, and, that's a, that, and it's a health concern, and, and we understand that, and we sympathize with you know, the, the plight of everybody they had to go through during the pandemic. But this isn't, this isn't a health insurance policy. It doesn't protect against people's health. So it's your position that, that your business interruption coverage doesn't cover all business interruptions? That's correct. It's only uh, uh, business interruptions that are caused by direct physical loss to property, which the court has determined to be physical alteration to property. Such as fire, Such water. Such as fire, those are class, the classic example. And when you have those type of event, they've caused physical damage to the structure. Uh, they've interrupted the business of the, of, the, of the insured. That's what this coverage is meant to, meant to apply to. Um, and that just, that just isn't the case um, with the virus. I uh, just wanted to touch uh, back on the, uh, um, this contamination issue because uh, there's been some argument that, that uh, IRT, uh, this court in IRT 1 adopted a contamination standard. Um, and, and I think that's a misapplication of, of, of the case. Um, and it's a, it's a misreading of uh, the citation that they made uh, 
uh, the court made to the oral surgeon's case out of the Eighth Circuit um, Court of Appeals, Federal Court of Appeals. Uh, in, the, in that case, uh, oral surgeons, uh, it should be said, it didn't involve any allegations of the actual uh, presence of the virus on, on the property. Um, in, in, in adopting uh, the same type of standard that's been adopted here, physical alteration standard, tangible alteration to property standard, oral surgeons discussed one of its earlier decisions that involved alleged uh, contamination to beef. Uh, it, it was thought that this beef product was, uh, was contaminated with mad cow disease. It's ultimately determined that it wasn't, um, but it was subject to the embargo, and you know a claim was uh, presented for um, the loss of the ability to use that beef. Ultimately, the A Circuit, and this is the uh, um, the Source Foods Technology case, uh, determined that there was no physical loss because the, the beef wasn't contaminated. Um, and so there, there wasn't a direct physical loss and it wasn't a covered event there. Uh, but I think that informs us what the Eighth Circuit in, uh, in the oral surgeon's case had in mind when it was talking about contamination. It was talking about you know, food contamination, beef contamination, and that's a fundamentally different situation than we have here. Um, beef cannot be cleaned. You cannot remove tainted meat. Once it's tainted, it, you know, it's unusable. It needs to be disposed of, and that's the end of it. Um, that's just fundamentally different from what we have here, because as their own experts admit, um, the virus uh, does not last. Um, it dies um, on its own, and eventually won't be a problem. Um, so what, what part of, I mean, how should we consider the cleaned up portion of this? The fact that you can clean it up in a, uh, in a short period of time and or that it dies after five to seven days. Is that a consideration when we look at physical loss and physical damage? And if so, how much of a consideration? I think it is a consideration. Uh, and that is, that is what you know, most of these cases are looking at to determine whether or not there's been a physical alteration. Um, and they recognize that, I mean, if something can be just removed by disinfecting or cleaning, that is not causing a physical alteration to the property. Uh, you wipe the rag over it, it's the same surface it was before. There's no change to the surface, right? And, and the same thing with, with the air. I mean, they argue that the air has been altered. Change to the surface, you're arguing there's no change to the object. You're changing there's the no surface change to the property. by removing the, the, the virus from the surface. The act of cleaning will, yes, remove the virus from the surface. But from your argument is it doesn't property. change the composition of, of the, uh, that's, that's, the furniture. That's correct. That's correct. And, and that's why I think it's key that, it, you know, as, as Judge Welch recognized in, in her ruling, um, that, that this court affirmed that there has to be some kind of structural, has to be some type of structural change um, to, to the policy, I mean, to the, uh, to the property. Um, and, and that's what, uh, you, know, the, you know, the numerous cases that we've, we've cited to the court um, have looked at and held, um, you know, in this, in this context in the, in, of the COVID uh, context, you know, there's been innumerable decisions have been uh, issued. And the uniformity uh, of those decisions is, 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 is kind of striking. Um, and they all, they come back to a couple of key concepts. Um, you know, the policy requires physical alteration to property. The virus doesn't do it. 
because you know even if you don't do anything to address the virus it's going to die on its own um, I see my time is, is expiring and I, I thank the court for their attention to this matter and we would ask that you affirm uh, the ruling below. Thank you Mr. Dolan. Thank you. All right, Mr. Plews, you may complete your argument. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. I have a couple, just a couple of points to make. One is that uh, the experts do not agree. I hope that's clear from our presentation that the experts, our experts, do not agree with Dr. Tom Thomason, who actually opined early in the case and doesn't even address the opinions that we offered. Um, secondly, look at the case law prior to COVID, um, the Mellon case and others. Are, are, in those cases, the insurance companies were arguing that there was no physical alteration or there had to be a physical alteration. So you were correct, Your Honor, in just sort of seeing that, seeing that difficulty with those cases, squaring those cases with the positions that insurance companies are taking now. Um, the case here is about what do we do to satisfy, did we do enough to satisfy the requirements of IRT 1? When we accept, we accept that, we disagree with the holding, we accept it as obviously all that it's governing. We think the materials we presented do satisfy that. And the problem has been, um, the uniformity of case law that they're talking about has been an inattention to the scientific information. And that's, that's where I think we should be allowed to proceed because that's, that's the kind of question. We, we don't know, when we, we were first in COVID, you may remember there was no understanding of, of variants. There was not an understanding of, of long COVID. Whole bunch of things that we're still finding out. But one of the things we should do, I think, and, and Justice Breyer, which who would quote length, at length in our brief, makes this point. Where matters of science are involved, then the court should allow and listen to the expert testimony that's offered. And these were, these were good experts with good arguments, and they reached different conclusions than their experts. So a trier of fact really ought to consider whether or not we satisfy that standard of, 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 of um, IRT1. But it still comes down to our interpretation of the term physical loss and physical damage, right? Well, I think that's, yes, but I think that bege that's been that's been fixed in IRT 1, right? I mean, it said alteration. That's what they said he had to show. Um, and so here we are. And how do we do that? We're offering expert testimony. They're offering not much except. And frankly, there's, there's um, you know, that's been the state of cases. You mentioned the circle block case. No expert testimony, no error issue in that case. A whole bunch of other distinctions as well. Um, doesn't apply Indiana law standards to insurance policies, which are pretty, pretty demanding. And I tried to put that in context, and you can look at the, at the uh, Sheehan case and the, um, your case, the FLM case, and the Flexstar case, the cases mentioned where it's not, it's not um, we're, we're saying that if they wanted to dis, just simply um, bar any virus-related claims, they had the power to do that. They didn't do that for this 17% of their policyholders. What's the average policyholder in Indiana supposed to, to, supposed to understand? Thank you. Thank you, thank you Mr. Thank you. Blues. Uh, thank you all for your fine arguments here today, and we will have uh, uh, an opinion out to you in due course. Thank you. We're in recess. <laughs>